Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. In today's episode, we're going to take a deep dive into one big issue, Turkey, and specifically Turkish-Israeli relations. Turkey and Israel have had diplomatic ties since way back in 1949. Crucially, Turkey was the first Muslim-majority country to recognize Israel. But in recent years, the relationship has become extremely strained, due primarily, but not exclusively, to the Palestinian issue. This may be changing soon, however, with a rumored upcoming visit to Turkey of Israeli President Isaac Herzog. To help us explain the importance of Herzog's potential visit, as well as the importance of Turkish-Israeli relations over the years, we have on with us today two bona fide Turkey experts. Israel Policy Forum's Policy Director Michael Koplow, coming to us from Washington, as well as Galia Lindenstrauss, who is a Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies here in Tel Aviv. Is there hope for reconciliation between Turkey and Israel? Let's find out. Hi, Galia. Hi, Michael. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Mary. Hi, Mary. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. Uh, so you two are the experts, and this is why I want to talk to you this week about Israel-Turkey relations. Uh, obviously, the big news coming up is likely that President Herzog might be traveling to Turkey soon uh, to meet with uh, Turkish President Erdogan. And according to anonymous Israeli officials, this might be a testing ground. Uh, of where Turkish-Israel relations might be heading, uh, potential reconciliation in relations. So I wanted to start here. Why are Turkey and Israel in need of a restoration in relations, right? Uh, Israel and Turkey have had official diplomatic ties since 1949. Uh, Turkey was famously part of David Ben-Gurion's periphery strategy in the Middle East, this alliance of non-Arab Middle Eastern states against uh, kind of a common hostile Arab enemy. So let's start here. Michael, can you kind of take us to the beginning of the Turkey-Israel relationship and explain how it came about and how it became so close, really, in terms of diplomatic, economic, and even military ties? Of course. So Turkey was famously the first Muslim-majority country to recognize Israel after the country's founding. It did so in 1949. And uh, like Israel, Turkey was a non-Arab state in the region. And one of David Ben-Gurion's strategies for Israel in, in its early days, both in terms of Israel's basic survival, but also in an effort to, uh, to grow Israel's power, was to try to form alliances with other similarly situated states. And so you had um, this uh, partnership between Israel and Turkey. You had a, a partnership between Israel and Iran. Uh, Ben-Gurion also made efforts to reach out uh, in some ways to, uh, to Kurds. Um, and there was this idea of these, these non-Arab powers uh, that would band together. And that was, that was the, the genesis of the relationship between Israel and Turkey. And mm -hmm. it also didn't hurt that uh, both Israel and Turkey were part of the, uh, the, the Western, I don't want to say alliance, but uh, sort of part of the West during the Cold War. Um, 
And, you know, this also created some sort of almost natural ties between the two. And, uh, and then what, what really, I think, took the relationship to the next level, particularly in the 80s and 90s, was very strong military ties between Israel and Turkey, uh, really between the IDF uh, and the Turkish military, where you had all sorts of exchanges, you had joint training exercises, uh, you really had this very tight military to military driven partnership. Um, and so there was this sense that uh, Israel and Turkey really were aligned in a lot of ways and they could help each other out and, and they were facing uh, they were facing similar challenges. Uh, mm-hmm. And so you had the relationship really, uh, really take off, particularly uh, toward the end of the 20th century. Okay, right. So decades of ties and really, I think, flourished right in the 1990s. Uh, Galia, can you flesh out for, for our listeners, explain really how deep these ties went? Uh, so Michael alluded to, to real you know, military-to-military ties, but also obviously Turkey was uh, a popular destination for Israeli tourists and uh, you know, still has real economic ties to Turkey, right? Yes, uh, I would add to what Michael presented very eloquently, that also there is a correlation between uh, how good Turkish-Israeli relations are to what is happening uh, between Israeli, Israel and the Arab countries, but all, more specifically between Israel and the Palestinians. Mm. So uh, the, really the honeymoon period in Turkish-Israeli relations comes in the 1990s, uh, along with the Madrid process and then the Oslo years. Uh, this is really when the relations begin to, to flourish. We have the uh, Herzog the father, the, the, <laughs> the current president's father, uh, go to Tur- Turkey in 1992. And that's the beginning of this really very deep and close relationship, uh, as Michael mentioned, in the military sphere, but also uh, in the academic uh, exchange. Uh, we see the tourists uh, begin flocking uh, t- Turkey uh, trade relations. Uh, we have a free trade agreement, which really boosts uh, the trade relationship until uh, Turkey becomes one of Israel's most important trade partners. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Uh, So you both sketched out a really positive relationship starting in 1949 and well into the 1990s, the the height really of Israeli-Turkish relations. Uh, But then we have, obviously in the early 2000s, the rise of the Justice and Development Party, uh, what's called the AKP, and their leader, uh, Erdogan. Um, is it right to say that this is where the real break uh, in Israeli-Turkish relations began uh, and really foreshadowed what would come later? Galia, is that, um, is that fair to say? And, and really, uh, I think for our listeners, it'd be interesting to explain uh, what the AKP, AKP was and, and who this figure of Erdogan, who you know, came to dominate Turkish politics in the early 2000s on. Basically, when we look at uh, how the Justice and Development rises to power, we have to look at 2001, which is a deep economic crisis in Turkey. Hmm. And there also the the public is basically fed up with the previous governments because they're all corrupt and there's a lot of instability. Um, The Justice and Development Party is basically uh, uh, a continuation of the Virtue Party, uh, an Islamist party in Turkey, which was closed down. Uh, because it violates the constitutional articles uh, of the secular character of Turkey. And uh, the Justice and Development Party was supposed to be actually the more um, reformative part of this uh, previous uh, virtue party. Um, In the 2002 elections, only two uh, 
parties pass the high election electoral threshold uh, in Turkey, which is 10%, which is really something very hard to 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 understand in a, in a democratic party that you have such a high electoral threshold. But anyhow, only two parties um, pass the threshold, and 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 Erdogan's Justice and Development Party. Uh, basically, is a, is able to form a government with no coalition partner, and that's how mm-hmm. things uh, begin. Begin, uh, but all the time, uh, Erdogan is worried that, like uh, his previous parties, previous religious parties, also his party will be, at some point be shut down by the army. So at the beginning, he doesn't uh, tackle the issue of Turkish-Israeli relations uh, because he knows the army is one of the actors that really is promoting this aspect of Turkish-Israeli relations. So at the beginning, he plays along. Uh, he doesn't uh, hurt Turkish-Israeli relations. And when Israel uh, disengages from Gaza, he even comes to his first and only visit in Israel in 2005. And he actually congratulated mm-hmm. Israel for this for this, uh, act, for this uh, effort to disengage from Gaza. And then interestingly, in 2007, another presidential, uh, Israeli presidential visit in in Turkey, uh, we have Shimon Peres going to Turkey, giving a speech along with uh, with the the Palestinian president. And this was actually the heart of Turkish-Israeli relations because this was the first uh, first uh, speech of Israeli president in front of a Muslim majority country's legislator. And uh, in 2007, 2008, Israel, uh, Turkey even mediates uh, between Israel and Syria in indirect peace talks. Right. Um, so in the beginning, Erdogan plays along with the Turkish-Israeli relations, and only later on, when he feels more secure, he basically uh, begins to um, the deterioration begins. That point that Galia just made about um, about Erdogan shifting when he feels more secure, I think it's important because a lot of a lot of folks, certainly in the United States, I think have always tended to to misread the AKP a bit. People tend to think of it first and foremost as an Islamist party. And so, you know, you hear a lot of talk about the AKP and the Muslim Brotherhood and how uh, the AKP is really uh, equivalent to other political Islamist parties around the world. And it's not entirely accurate because it's certainly um, Islamist inspired. It certainly supports Muslim Brotherhood movements, but when when the AKP first got elected, you know, as Galia as Galia had, had mentioned, Turkey was in a deep economic crisis, and the AKP didn't get elected primarily because it positioned itself as an Islamist party. It got elected because um, the Kemalists, who had uh, you know effectively been ruling Turkey in, in one way or another, either through politics or through the army for decades, um, were coming off, you know, an absolutely miserable economic uh, economic period with uh, hyperinflation and uh, the economy in kind of in the tank. And so the AKP presented itself really first and foremost as a reformist party that ran on the economy. Um, and, you know, particularly early on, this is in a lot of ways what led Erdogan to continue this relationship with Israel on a good trajectory because he wasn't he wasn't acting out of out of Islamist motivations. Um, he looked at Israel as a partner that could help uh, help the Turkish economy. Um, and you really do only see this shift once the Turkish economy becomes stronger and Erdogan feels more secure politically. 
um, and he's already been reelected once, that's when you start to see the shift. Um, you know, where, uh, as Galia said, he begins to feel more comfortable, and that's when some of these other tendencies start to come out. That's fascinating. Uh, and Galia, just to explain further, uh, give some background to who Erdogan was, uh, what he was doing before he, uh, you know, he won the 2002 election, just some context on, on the man who uh, would go on to dominate Turkish politics for the next 20 years. I mean, Erdogan is a fascinating figure, uh, now almost 20 years uh, in power. He's a Cinderella story. He starts from a difficult background, uh, then rises uh, first as uh, the Istanbul mayor, a very successful mayor, but it ends up by by the uh, by him being in jail uh, for reciting a song that again uh, is seen as as, as violating the, the secular uh, identity of, of Turkey. Uh, so he he isn't he this short uh, prison period in which he was. Uh, definitely formed his, his paranoia from the army. He's a great uh, he's, he's a great admirer and follower of uh, Turkey's first Islamist prime minister Erbakan, and Erbakan also ended his uh, his career. Uh, the army ended his career abruptly, um, so he rightfully feared the army, and uh, he spent his first uh, decade in power basically weakening the army. Until he, again, we have already discussed this, that he secured his position enough, and then he moved to to implement his his policies. Uh, he's a devout Muslim. He definitely wants to see. Uh, he thinks that um, the genuine voice in in Turkey is something that is much more uh, the, the secular nature of Turkey is imposed from the West and is something that is unnatural. Uh, to Turkey, and he's he's made his effort to change uh, the character of of Turkey. Fascinating. Uh, okay, so the Cinderella story takes power, uh, rebuilds, let's say, the economy, solidifies his own position uh, in Turkish politics and Turkish society, uh, and this actually helps Israeli-Turkish relations. Uh, as you mentioned, it you know it might have been the height of of that relationship, but then uh, a real break comes in 2010, right, uh, with the Gaza flotilla incident, uh, the Mavi Marmara ship uh, that was part of this flotilla that was trying to break the blockade of Gaza. It was boarded, uh, as we all probably remember, by Israeli naval commandos who uh, were given a not-so-nice welcome uh, on that ship. And in the ensuing clashes, uh, nine Turkish activists were killed. Uh, Michael, what was Erdogan's response to this uh, to this rather dramatic incident? The the break between Israel and Turkey, um, you know, really, as you as you rightly say, Neri, happened definitively with the Mavi Marmara. But um, there were some indications leading up to it that this was coming. Uh, there was a famous incident the year before at the World Economic Forum in Davos, where Erdogan and Shimon Peres were on the same panel. And Erdogan um, ended uh, ended up uh, leaving leaving the panel before it was over, getting up and kind of storming off um, after accusing Shimon Peres uh, and Israel of uh, of being killers and and complaining that Shimon Peres got twice as much speaking time as he did. <laughs> um, so you know there were these indications that the Israel Turkey relationship was becoming a little more a little more difficult. Um, and uh, and then and that was primarily driven, uh, as Gali mentioned at the very beginning of this, um, by Israeli-Palestinian issues. Uh, you know, it, it came after um, 
the the first real uh, Israeli Israeli conflict with Hamas in Gaza uh, in 2008. So mm-hmm. you know, this this was sort of building up, and then you had the Mavi Marmara, which was this flotilla that was sent by um, the IHH, which is a um, supposed to be a, a Turkish humanitarian organization. Uh, it has it has documented uh, terrorist ties, uh, and also has um, at the time at least had. Uh, deep ties to the AKP um, as this as this uh, Islamic charitable organization, uh, and so it sent this flotilla to try to break Israel's blockade of Gaza, uh, and uh, the Mavi Mamre was uh, was intercepted by the by the Israeli Navy and, and IDF troops boarded, and uh, and as you as you noted, a number of the uh, people on board were killed. Um, and, you know, it was obviously controversial, uh, controversial because there were deaths, also controversial because there was video of um, the, the activists who were supposed to be, you know, uh, unarmed civilians um, armed with all sorts of all sorts of things, you know, uh, guns, clubs, knives. Uh, and so it caused this this huge incident, this huge break. And um, you know, this was in May 2010. I actually, <laughs> I actually uh, got to Turkey in June 2010 uh, to do to do field work for my dissertation uh, just a few weeks after the Mavi Marmara, and there was anti-Israel graffiti, you know, on on walls of buildings and and, and signs, you know, all over the streets of Istanbul, all over the place, <laughs> um, and it was actually it was actually interesting to me at the time, you know, this was like four or five weeks after, maybe even less. Um, the Turkish press had sort of dropped it. You didn't see a lot of it in the Turkish press. But as I said, there were, you know, there, there, there were signs and, and graffiti on walls um, kind of everywhere you looked. Um, and so, like, if you were walking around Turkey at the time, or at least in Istanbul, um, you felt that this was this was a big deal, that it was kind of, you know, literally out out on the streets. Um, and, you know, basically the, the war of words escalated between Israel and Turkey with uh, Turkey demanding an apology and Israel demanding an apology for uh, for the effort to, to uh, break the blockade. Um, and at that point, you had this real, um, in some ways, definitive break between between Israel and Turkey. Yeah, just by way of comparison, but only a slight comparison. I remember uh, when I first moved back to Tel Aviv in, I think, 2011, there was a uh, shawarma joint uh, across the street from my old flat. And it used to be a Turkish shawarma place. And when I moved in to the neighborhood in 2011, they had the Turkish part on the sign crossed out, uh, and they had and they had signs of the uh, Israeli Shaitet 13, the Israeli naval commandos, uh, all over the walls. So, in terms of sentiment in Israel, it might have been uh, reciprocated after the uh, Mavi Marmara incident. Um, Galia, this incident, uh, as Michael laid out, was was a real break. Um, but there were efforts afterwards to to repair the damage, right? In 2013 and 2016, uh, former Israeli Prime Minister uh, Bibi Netanyahu even uh, went so far as to apologize for the deaths uh, of the Turkish uh, activists. Um, can you explain what those reconciliation efforts consisted of? Because there might be uh, echoes of what's happening right now. Um, and why didn't those reconciliation efforts actually succeed? in 2013 and 2016? Um, Yes, in 2013, uh, in the context of Obama's visit to Israel, Israel wants to show goodwill. And uh, in the context of his visit, uh, Netanyahu uh, phone calls Erdogan and says, he he apologizes, but he says, he basically, he says that about 
things that might have gone wrong uh, in the incident. It's not a full, let's say it's not a full-hearted apology, but that's enough for the Turkish side. Mm-hmm. And then there's the question of uh, compensation. Uh, and also the the third uh, demand of Turkey was that Israel lifts the blockade over Gaza. Okay. Uh, this was never clear what exactly the Turkey Turks mean. Do they mean only the naval blockade? And that, of course, has stayed in place. But uh, most uh, supplies go to uh, Gaza uh, by land. And the restrictions on that have actually been lifted. Uh, some of the restrictions were lifted immediately after the murmur. So it was never completely clear. But anyhow, uh, the Turks uh, got... Uh, uh, 21 million dollar compensation to a fund that was later allocated to the families of those uh, who mm-hmm. were killed in the, in the incident and also uh, Turkey sent these big ships uh, to Ashdod and they were like Israel wanted they they, they went through security and uh, this had all sorts of humanitarian uh, aid to Gaza but anyhow these big ships were also the symbolic uh, gesture to, gestures uh, Turkey was looking for from Israel uh, after to, to the normalization agreement is signed in 2016, the ambassadors are back uh, to Ankara and Tel Aviv. In 2017, we really see a year in which relations begin to go back uh, to normal. Uh, what made Turkey and Israel change course in 2016? Uh, well, for Israel, there was always the, the issue of the, the protection of the Israeli soldiers that were part of the uh, attempt to stop the flotilla in 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 2010, uh, and this was definitely a demand in Israel that these soldiers will not be uh, prosecuted, and that was something that Turkey uh, did give to Israel. Uh, in, in 2016, we have to remember that Turkey is in a difficult position because in late 2015, uh, Turkey um, downs a, a Russian jet, and Russia responds to Turkey with all sorts of economic uh, sanctions. So uh, this was uh, basically uh, also correlating with uh, the attempt to restart relations with Israel. It also, that was the time that Turkey also apologized uh, to Russia. So this was a, a low point of Turkish foreign policy. Uh, at the time, there was also hopes that uh, there was all this gas that was found offshore of Israel. That there was hopes that this gas would go, uh, that there would be a pipeline built uh, from Israel to Turkey. Uh, this was important for Turkey uh, for diversifying uh, its uh, energy supplies. Basically, Turkey, uh, almost all its energy needs, um, it has to import. Uh, so that's a big issue. And it's very much dependent on Russia and Iran. So it wants to diversify. It was hoping to get this Mediterranean gas to diversify its energy supplies. And also for Israel at the mm-hmm. time, uh, there was a big public debate whether to export the gas or just to keep it for uh, domestic consumption. And it was good for the government to show that there is some uh, market, potential market for this gas. So at the time, there was this attempt to uh, present the gas option as something viable. This didn't uh, rise, basically. Um Today, Israel uses mostly Egypt uh, to export its gas. Okay. And so what you're laying out is, is a potential thawing of relations, but why, uh, why didn't they bear fruit further? Uh, why wasn't it uh, consummated fully? So less than two years after uh, the normalization agreement was signed, in May 2018, uh, we had both the U.S. decision to uh, move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which was received very badly in Turkey, and there was also all the um, all the events on the the the, the fence in Gaza, Gaza which uh, g- g- uh, people were, were were killed, 
and this uh, caused the Turkey to withdraw its ambassador. Now, this is very normal uh, diplomatic procedure. You're not unhappy with something that is happening in another country, you withdraw your ambassador. What was unconventional was that Turkey told also the Israeli ambassador, go home for consultations. And then Israel told uh, the Turkish consul general in Jerusalem, go home. And then uh, Turkey also told the Israeli consul general in uh, Istanbul to go home. And from that time, from 2018, we don't have high level diplomatic representation in both countries. And uh, since then, of course, uh, if we look at the last uh, Operation Gaza, Guardian of the Walls, again, so we hear very vocal critique uh, from Turkey uh, coming against Israel. We also have the ongoing problem of Hamas uh, presence in, in Turkey. Um, basically, as part of the the deal around the the, the soldier, the kidnapped soldier Gilad Shalit and his uh, and his uh, freeing uh, with Hamas, uh, Israel wanted some of these Hamas prisoners to be uh, deported out of the West Bank and Gaza. And Turkey was one of the countries which got uh, some Hamas operatives from this uh, Gilad Shalit prison uh, prison exchange deal. Exchange. And uh, this this was basically the beginning of uh, Hamas uh, headquarters um, in in Turkey. And we see in it, we see surfacing from time to time Israeli accusations that uh, Hamas is conducting logistical and military planning activity on Turkish soil. Uh, that some of these Hamas operatives were later given uh, Turkish passports and are basically uh, roaming freely and uh, really uh, doing things and and planning terror attacks in the in, in mostly in the West Bank. Right, uh, most famous out of those released prisoners, uh, Salah Al Aruri, if I remember correctly, uh, who is uh, essentially the Hamas uh, military leader for the West Bank, operating, uh, I believe, these days. Out of Turkey, but not only out of Turkey. He's specifically, actually, uh, uh, before the 2016 uh, uh, normalization agreement between Turkey and Israel, he was actually expelled from Turkey, and that was actually a okay. seriousness proof on behalf of Ankara uh, in the days uh, before the signing of the normalization agreement. That's good to know. This is why you bring on experts to a podcast to remind me of the of the important details, uh, Michael. Just to top off this point, uh, Erdogan and the Palestinian issue. From your perspective, is it is it uh, instrumental? You know, it's like a lever that he pulls on whenever he needs to feel like uh, he needs to make some, some muscles in the region. Um, is it something that's ideological to him, you know, in terms of being an Islamist leader? Uh, is it related to his role in the wider Middle East to show that he's the real champion of the Palestinian cause? Uh, how do you explain Erdogan's uh, insistence, shall we put it, on the Palestinian issue? It, it's all of these things. Uh, there's no no doubt in my mind that at the heart of it, he does have um, a very deep ideological uh, belief in the Palestinian cause. Um, you know, the, the the AKP. You know, as I said, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's it's quite right to think of it. As a purely Islamist party, but um, you know, to think of it really as, as Islamist inspired, and uh, Erdogan fits into that mold. You know, he's he's a he's a deeply religious Muslim, and I think he certainly feels genuine solidarity with the Palestinians and the Palestinian cause, which is why you see him, you know, over time, you know, when first calling calling uh, Israelis killers, and then you know he moves on to he's he's charged Israel with 
committing genocide, um, you know, uh, all all dip, uh, state terrorism, all all sorts of things. Uh, you know, and, and his rhetoric over time has gotten um, harsher and harsher. And so he certainly, I think, believes the things he's saying. But you know, it's also pretty clear that he's able to uh, tamp it down and ramp it up depending on his own internal politics. And so, you know, it's why during the first almost decade of AKP rule, when he was trying to grow the economy and he didn't want to uh, didn't want to shake the boat too much, he was able to keep these instincts in check. Um, and then as Turkey became stronger uh, and as the economy grew, he felt that it was, uh, if not beneficial, at least not as damaging to say some of these things out loud. Um, and then, you know, what we've really seen is starting in 2013, which is when you had uh, the Gezi Park protests in Turkey, you know, and these were the first real challenges to AKP rule and to Erdogan's rule. The role of populist rhetoric and nationalist rhetoric for Erdogan uh, has become a lot more important. And you've seen it increase in all sorts of ways, um, not only against Israel, but uh, against the United States, the West, the EU. Um, and he has certainly used anti-Israel rhetoric and um, pro-Palestinian rhetoric to his own political benefit. Um, mm-hmm. because, you know, for, for all of this, for all of this talk about, um, Israel, historic Israel-Turkey ties and Turkish secularism, at the end of the day, the, the Turkish population is a relatively religious and conservative population. And, um, this type of anti-Israel rhetoric goes over pretty well. You know, Israel was always popular among the secular elite and the military and not nearly as popular among the Turkish people. And, Erdogan is, uh, you know, an enormously successful populist politician. Um, you know, he really views himself as coming from the people, um, partially because of because of his own his own modest background, um, and so he uses this to to great effect. And um, and when it comes to his view of Turkey's role in the region, he has always wanted to position Turkey as a leading Muslim power, and he's always wanted to position Turkey as the defender of the Palestinians. And in one way he's done this is by supporting Hamas, um, largely at the expense of the Palestinian Authority. It's one of the reasons why, until uh, very recently, you've had pretty bad relations between Erdogan and Mahmoud Abbas and, and Erdogan and the PA generally. Right. The other way that he's tried to do this is by asserting a Turkish role in Jerusalem. Um, and that's caused friction, not only with the Israelis, but with the Jordanians. And, mm-hmm. you know, Erdogan's thinking is that uh, the Saudis have, you know, obviously a lock on uh, Mecca and Medina. And so he's going to try to, in effect, claim Jerusalem for Turkey and, and position Turkey as the great defender of Jerusalem and Al-Aqsa. And this has contributed to tensions as well, because there is now an enormous Turkish presence in East Jerusalem in terms of building projects they fund, in terms of you know money they're uh, they're spreading around. Um, when you had the the big uh, protests against Israeli metal detectors on the Temple Mount in uh, I think it was 2016, if memory serves correctly, 
um, or maybe it was 2018. Um, 2017, I think. 2017, all right. <laughs> split, split the difference. Um, whenever, right whenever those were and, and exact years escaping me, um, Turkey actually um, funded buses to bring uh, to bring uh, Palestinians from northern Israel, which is where most of them were coming from, uh, you know, from the Arab Triangle, um, paid for buses to bring to bring thousands and thousands of Palestinians to the Temple Mount to protest. And so, you know, in all of these ways, you know, the the, the benefit of the Palestinian cause in terms of uh, political populism, um, the benefit to being seen as the defender of the Palestinians and in particular of Al-Aqsa, um, you know, the, uh, the, all, in all of these ways, he really, and of course his, his, his core belief in the issue, um, mm-hmm. in all of these ways, you know, it, it has just been beneficial to him um, to really uh, make, this, make this issue more tense and more polarizing. Um, and it's, uh, it's really sort of taken a, a shock, a real shock to the Turkish economy and to Turkey's regional posture for this to stop. Because we're getting to a point where Erdogan now seems to think that uh, it will be beneficial to start to move in the other direction, um, but I, th- I think that this probably goes against his his ideological instincts and beliefs. So you're getting uh, a little bit ahead of where I wanted to take you, but this is a really good transition. Uh, by the way, Galia, did you want to add anything to to what Michael said about uh, Erdogan and the Palestinian issue? I would just add to that basically if we would use a social science term, this is overdetermination. And this personal level, the fact that he gets domestic support for this, and and he uses this to have more influence in the Muslim world and in general uh, to push Turkey forward. Very succinctly put. I like that. Uh, so to take us right to the present day, and as Michael alluded to, uh, we have this potential, at least, for a thawing of relations between Israel uh, and Turkey. Uh, last November, we saw Erdogan get involved directly in the release of a Israeli uh, couple who was in uh, Turkey for for tourism. Uh, they were alleged to be spies. Uh, that's obviously was obviously not the case, and they were uh, thankfully released. Uh, we've had at least reports of uh, Turkey restricting some Hamas activities uh, inside inside the country. Um, why now? Why now? Uh, I guess, Dalia, we'll start with you. Is it purely due to the worsening Turkish economy and Erdogan looking for for an about face and a way out to try to improve the Turkish economy? Is it as simple as that? It's definitely a big factor. Uh, the depreciation in, 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 Turkish, in the, the value of Turkish lira has been sharp. Uh, even the official inflation figures are not good and the unofficial figures basically point to hyperinflation in Turkey. And definitely uh, Turkey needs outside uh, assistance and, and more foreign uh, foreign investments mm-hmm. and in this respect it needs to repair its relationship that's part of the story uh, actually uh, the erdogan's overtures towards israel start uh, in in december uh, 2020 he begins to say that uh, we need to improve uh, relations and here i think we have to point to the fact that in 2020 uh, turkish actions were very provocative they annoyed a lot of actors in the Middle East. And basically, we saw an informal uh, anti-Turkey access forming between Greece, Cyprus, Egypt, Israel, and the UAE. And this, at some point, began to be too much for Turkey. And so we see the overtures towards Israel 
are not isolated. We see also uh, attempts to improve relations with other actors in the region, with the UAE, they have really moved forward, uh, but also with Saudi Arabia and with Egypt. Uh, so I think this mm. understanding that you need to repair relations because Turkey went too far uh, and antagonized too many actors uh, in the region. And another element is, is Turkey's relations with the Biden administration. They are, as we know, uh, rocky. Uh, but uh, one good thing that the Biden administration did in the eyes of, of Turkey is the fact that uh, the administration sent a non-paper to Greece, basically saying that uh, the U.S. does not support anymore uh, the building of the East Med pipeline, which was supposed to carry Israeli gas through Cyprus uh, to Greece and later uh, to Europe. This was something that really, mm -hmm. uh, really annoyed the Turkish side and Turkey really went out of its ways uh, to stop this project. It signed a very controversial uh, economic exclusive zone agreement with uh, one side to the Libyan uh, civil war. Uh, and uh, hence the fact that uh, this uh, um, announcements of the U.S. basically is causing this project to probably uh, be scrapped uh, is something that is viewed very favorably in Ankara. And Ankara, I think, thinks that also Israel is is silently agreeing to this uh, scrapping of the project. Yeah, and I'd, and I'd just add to that on the U.S. angle, that during the Trump administration, Turkey had almost a, a, a bizarre free pass. Um, you know, there was something, there was something to the, the, the Trump-Erdogan relationship um, that allowed Turkey to in some ways, uh, escape escape Trump's wrath, uh, despite um, Turkey-Iran ties, despite all sorts of evidence that, that Turkey was helping the Iranians uh, bust sanctions, um, despite the fact that uh, Turkey's relationship with Israel was uh, was was poor and in many ways uh, in many ways getting worse, um, despite the fact that uh, that there were supposed to be American sanctions on Turkey. Um, because uh, because of a, a Russian missile defense uh, or a Russian air defense system that it bought, um, which got kicked out of the F-35 program. Um, for some reason, during the Trump administration, the, the really harsh reaction against Turkey didn't materialize, despite all these ways in which Turkey was clashing with U.S. policy. And, you know, Galia points to December 2020. I, I don't think that's a that's a coincidence either, given that uh, there was a new president uh, who was about to take office. And I think that, you know, Erdogan also looked around, saw the way uh, in which there was this regional perception that the road to Washington runs through Jerusalem uh, and decided that uh, it may be better for his relations with a new administration and with Congress if he started to repair the relationship with Israel a bit. So, uh, you know, I, I think there is a U.S. angle here as well. It's not uh, it's not simply about uh, Israel and Turkey bilaterally. Very important point. Uh so in terms of a repairing of, of ties, uh, President Herzog is, is ostensibly set to travel to Turkey, they said, early February uh, for, for this uh, uh, historic diplomatic visit. Um, my question to you, Galia, is why Herzog? Why the president of Israel? Um, is it due to previous ties with Erdogan? Uh, is it through other back channels that we don't know of? Um, at least anonymously, Israeli officials are saying that this will be a, a testing ground of of Erdogan and Turkish intentions. I think Herzog is a is a more comfortable uh, person for Erdogan to work with. You know, Herzog comes from the labor. 
On the other hand, Bennett, you know, he's a very strong right right wing, and Bennett has also voiced in the past a very harsh uh, criticism of Turkey. So I think in this respect, Herzog is is an easier um, public figure to work with. Um, these overtures of Erdogan towards Israel uh, manifested themselves uh, in in June um, last year, in which he congratulated Herzog for his entering into office. And then we had another uh, talk between the presidents uh, after this uh, affair of the Oknin couple, these Israeli tourists that were held in Turkey and later uh, released. Uh, this was the second time Herzog and Erdogan talked, and then the third time uh, when uh, Herzog's mother died and Erdogan called um, uh, called him, uh, of course, to... Uh, to 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 share condolences, condolences, and serious sadness. Um, so these were the three the three uh, talks between the two. Um, this has proven to be a useful uh, communication channel. I think also, although Israeli Israel is not a presidential system, he does like the fact that it's a president talking to a president. Uh, although we know again the decision making process in Israel is is different, and the, the prime minister is the one that makes this, such decisions. But interestingly, interestingly, in the interviews and Naftali Bennett gave the last weekend, he gave a few interviews to the newspapers. Uh, basically, he said, "I'm going to use Herzog. Uh, if I can use him to improve relations with Turkey, I will use him." And so I think uh, it's important to note that Herzog does have the backing of uh, Prime Minister Bennett. It's not something that he's doing against uh, Bennett's will. And ostensibly also the backing of the alternate prime minister and, and the actual foreign minister, Yair Lapid. I mean, Lapid is, is an interesting, uh, on the one hand, he's definitely, again, the center and the left part of the government, and center-left part of the government. On the other hand, uh, Lapid has been quite vocal in the demand that Israel will recognize uh, the Armenian uh, genocide. So I think he's also a hurdle in some ways to the improvement in relations. But yes, um, they also, I mean, they also talked with him. He had uh, COVID and, uh, and the Turkish foreign minister called uh, to convey the uh, best wishes for his healing. So that was also an interesting uh, attempt on the Turkish side to, to soften uh, the ground with regard to Lapid. I also think that Lapid does a good job of um fostering fostering relations between Israel and uh, and leaders that he thinks it's important for there to be relations with but that he himself doesn't want to to personally do right you know it's, it's the whole the whole idea of he recognizes it's important for people to talk to Abbas but you know he doesn't want to have to do it himself I think that um, you know but he obviously obviously knows knows it's going on and, and I'm sure approves it ahead of time I think it's probably similar here so if the Herzog visit does happen maybe even in the next week or two what are the prospects that it that it succeeds and that israel turkey relations actually get back on track uh, do you think it will actually move the needle and and repair the real damage of the past 10 plus years uh, michael what do you think i think it depends on uh, on how you define success you know the fact if herzog actually goes and you know he has a presidential visit with erdogan and um, you know, and, and the, the red carpet is rolled out. Obviously, that will heal some of the damage and, and repair some of the ties. Um, but we've we've seen this before. You know, not obviously not quite to the same extent. But you know, we we did have the the, the tarmac phone call in 2013. We did have a reconciliation agreement in 2016 that was never 
fully fulfilled. You know, we, we've seen this happen. And um, every time it seems as if things are getting better, Israeli-Palestinian issues in particular tend to throw a monkey wrench into the into the mix and uh, and foul things up. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it is important. It's important to stress just how just how bad the Turkish economy is right now. Um, you know, Galia talked about uh, the talked about inflation, and um, you know, there there really is almost no foreign investment left. The combination of a of a bad investment climate and the fact that people don't trust uh, Turkish basic law and order, and and that Erdogan won't won't seize assets. You know, the for for over a decade now. Um, after El Al, Turkish Air has been the airline that has the most daily flights in and out of Ben Gurion Airport. Um, you know, like mm-hmm. the, the reliance, the reliance on on Israel for uh, for tourism and, and for trade still is important. Um, and I think Erdogan also sees Israeli investment uh, in other in other states around the region, and you know, was hoping to attract some of it. And so, I think he's gonna I think he's gonna try his best to to behave and uh, to try to improve these ties. Um, but, you know, Turkish elections are coming in 2023, um, for the first time really since, since 2000, since 2002, um, there is a good chance that Erdogan and the AKP are not going to win. And as they get closer, you know, I do worry that the, the populist temptation, uh, is going to, uh, is going to rear its head again. And that uh, you know there may be there may be another Turkey Israel blow up coming. Galia, what do you think? Palestinian relations and I, I concur that uh, we have to be realistic in our expectations about Turkey Israeli relations. Nobody is expecting the relations to return to anything like we had in the 1990s. But a presidential visit should be accompanied with uh, the return of the ambassadors. If before the presidential uh, uh, visit or afterwards. I think, by the way, February is unrealistic. Probably we're talking about a visit in in, in March. I think that's that's a more realistic aim. Mm. Uh, with regard to, uh, of course, if we have uh, a deterioration in Israeli-Palestinian uh, relations, that will have an effect on Turkish-Israeli relations. And if we have another operation in Gaza, that will again, Turkey might decide to withdraw its ambassador. But I would highlight that this time around, Israel comes to this. Uh, normalization process in a stronger uh, position than in the past, uh, basically with the Abram Accords and our strengthened relations with Egypt. Uh, Israel is now basically has a stronger position in, in the region, and hence the price of deteriorating relations with Israel is higher for the Turkish side. And and that's why I think Turkey will think um, ahead uh, in, 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 in the future, whether it's worse for it to to deteriorate relations, but I agree with Michael. Yes, we're I mean, 2023 is coming along uh, with the elections, and when it's about domestic politics, nobody knows. I mean, this is really we are in uncharted waters in the sense of how weak Erdogan is today compared to the past, and hence we, if we expect rational decision making, maybe we'll be um, unpleasantly surprised. Or so. And and Galia's point about um, the the shift in balance, I think, is important because for a long time, it was either the case or at least the perception that it was Israel that was looking to mend ties, and that it was more important for Israel to mend ties because 
um, it would leave it less isolated in the region uh, because it, it needed, you know, it needed the, the military ties with Turkey for all, all sorts of reasons. Um, it's pretty clear that right now Turkey needs Israel a lot more than Israel needs Turkey. Um, and, you know, I, I think that uh, we're I'm, I'm sure that the Israeli government, you know, across across all all sectors understands this. And so I think that uh, there's probably going to be a, a pretty healthy and warranted dose of skepticism going forward. Um, and, you know, I think that if Turkey wants to have real improved relations with Israel, Turkey is going to have to kind of put something on the table and, and really earn it um, because it is it is at this point Turkey uh, that that needs this more than Israel does. Truly fascinating. Uh, the tables and the region uh, have turned a lot since 1949, when Turkey was really, uh, other than Iran back in the day, the only Middle East uh, country that recognized Israel. Uh, but that obviously has changed in recent decades. Michael Galia, thank you so much for your insight and your analysis. Uh, it's great, as I said, to be amongst actual experts on an issue as uh, important as Turkey and its ties with Israel. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot, Neri. And, and thanks, Galia. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening. All right. That was Michael Koplo and Galia Lindenstrauss. Many thanks to them again. Also thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, as well as to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, be safe out there. And thanks again for listening.